<clears throat> Father, we thank you for the example of the Israelites, even though they were tremendously disobedient. It has given us direction. It has pointed us where we need to go, and it has showed us what we need to avoid. And Father, we are just like them. We have a tendency to go astray and to wander. But Father, I pray that by being in your word and feeding ourselves spiritually, that you would strengthen us just for the Christian walk, being a witness for you and selling out. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that amazes me is I'll have the opportunity to talk to different people, uh, people that I've known for a short time, people that I've known for a long time. And at one time they may have been solid in their faith, and yet they turn away. They either don't go to church very much or they are mediocre in their faith they're really not on fire and it's it's all because the flesh pulls them back and they allow the flesh to do that we all know that exercise physical exercise requires a commitment if you're going to do it you have to get out of bed you have to put on your workout workout clothes you have to watch your diet you have to go sweat and experience pain and it's not something that is real pleasant. I've never seen somebody in a gym just smiling as big as they can as they are lifting weights or they're running on a treadmill or doing a stairmaster. The Christian faith is the same. It's mostly sweat and muscle exertion. It brings to you pain, but there are eternal rewards. Have you seen somebody who is completely ripped as far as muscles on their body? You look at them and you think, wow, they all look like Mike in the back. They're all just full of muscle everywhere. <clears throat> and you can be like that spiritually speaking. You can be a heavyweight. You can be the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the Christian faith if you will only apply yourself but we have so much to distract us whether it's your phones or your tablets or pads or the desktop computer or the radio or the navigation system in your vehicles there's always something to pull our viewing away if you go up to LA they have the big screen televisions as their billboards up there have you seen those and you, you could be driving along and just watching television as you drive by get the latest episode of the Kardashians as you're heading out and, and so there's always something to keep us occupied and the Lord wants us to just drown that stuff out turn it off and spend some time with him. If we do, we will end up becoming strong in the faith. If we don't, we will always muddle along. We will always be discontent. We will never find the joy that the Lord wants us to have. And that's the goal of this life, is to walk with God, love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and find contentment here on earth, whether it's in your job or your family life. He says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, that's it. That's all we need to do. Everything else is vanity. Now, with that, getting into Exodus, we have the community of the Israelites. On the inside, they have this bickering and complaining. We went through the murmuring and the chatter. Gave you an example of that last time. 
but it seems to arise from the inside and that when that opposition takes place there's disharmony there's disunity there's uncertainty that happens and even the apostle paul desired that we all become mature and that we are unified in the faith that we're not tossed back and fro by any wind of doctrine. We don't see something happen and then decide, well, I'm done with that. Look at, look at that church, how they acted in there. They're just, oh, they're sinners. You think. I mean, everybody in a church is a sinner from the pastor on up because the pastor and the elders and deacons and all the people that serve in ministry, they support the rest of the church from the bottom up. They're supposed to be the servants. They're not supposed to get the parking lots and load it, or parking spaces and lord over uh, the people that are there. They are to be the servants of all. That is, after all, the greatest in the kingdom. And so in the Israelite community, that disunity was just rampant. And they were dealing with the manna. They didn't have meat. They didn't have bread to eat. They didn't have water. And God tested them in these things to reveal their heart. And in verse 19 where we left off, Moses is giving uh, instruction on what to do with the manna as they collect this manna. It says, Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. Now, there's... There's the first thing. When it comes to a family unit, there is direction that's supposed to be given in the family unit. Hopefully, uh, it's by the father. And the wife provides wisdom and gives counsel. And with that counsel, the husband decides, okay, we're going to go in this particular direction. And the kids are supposed to submit to that. Uh, My daughter... Excuse me, my granddaughter the other day, uh, she was over for youth group. We bring her to youth group here. And there was a question came up, and I forget exactly what it was. But when the kids, and I'm, I'm trying to teach them some lessons in a, with a little more hilarity. And I'll turn to them, and I'll tell them something when they ask me, well, why should I do that? Well, how come? Well, give me a reason. And I turn to them, and I'm, I say to them, because I'm Papa. That's why. And that's all the reason they need. Well, my granddaughter, she was in the kitchen and something came up, a question about why, and she, she wasn't asking the question. She answered the question in the kitchen about whatever it was, and she said, because he's Papa. That's it. That's why you would do that particular thing. Well, that's when we follow the Lord, why would you do something that the Lord wants you to do? Why should you? Because he's God. That's it. You don't need anything else to lean on except he's God, and that's why you submit to him. Now, Moses was a type of Christ. If Christ instructs us to do something, if you say, well, why should I do what he says? Because he's God. That's why you do it. And it requires a crucifixion of the flesh without a doubt. And that's mostly what we don't want to do. But the people here under Moses, I'm not listening to him. Look at all the trouble he's gotten us in. He's led us into the wilderness and we don't have water to drink. And where's the meat? And finally we got some quail. It's about time. And then there's this white stuff looks like snow, according to Josephus, all over the ground. And you're supposed to pick that up off of rocks and you put it in a pan and you bake it and you fry it and you do whatever, make a souffle out of it. And that's just, I'm collecting more. That's it. I'm tired of listening to this. And so there was this 
murmuring. There's this dissension and grumbling in the ranks. So it goes on from there, and it says, They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. (laughs) Couldn't you see like a father, Didn't I tell you? Something like that in the house with the kids. Didn't I tell you to go do this or go do that? And as a parent, you say, why didn't they listen to me? Um, I told this story years ago. My son, he went to school, and when he went to school, Patty would prepare for him a nice sandwich. Put the sandwich in a baggie and put it in his lunch bag, and he would take it to school. And uh, he had come home, and he'd just be famished. And so started asking him, um, did you eat your sandwich? Well, eventually it came out, no. He always throws it away. He doesn't eat it. And both Patty and I, we went, we were at something, a family function, and we went to my aunt, and we were telling her, do you believe it? You know, he's throwing away his sandwich. And yeah, we tell him, okay, you got to keep that sandwich. And she just smiled, shook her head a little bit, and she goes, and he'll do it again. And we were incredulous. He will not. He will not do that again. Come to find out a few weeks later, asked him again about his sandwiches. He was throwing them away again. It's like, I'm not going to fix you a sandwich if you keep on throwing away. But just this act of disobedience, he wasn't willing to do what he was supposed to do. My son wasn't. And this is the same thing with the nation of Israel. And Moses was saying, what? Why don't you just do what you're instructed to do? This isn't me speaking, it's God. God says to do this. I'm telling you what God says to do, but you won't listen. And so these hard-hearted, stiff-necked people that Moses was in charge of, it gave him some angst. It gave him some worry. I'm sure he didn't sleep sometimes at night. Verse 21, each morning everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it in the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Do you see the connection here between creation? Six days you shall labor, and seventh day you shall rest. And that was the commandment that was codified in the Ten Commandments on the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And... With that, Saturday was the only ceremonial commandment. And that ceremonial commandment is not kept today because Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. When you enter into Christ, when you become one with him, you enter into your rest. And that's what that commandment was supposed to point to. Entering your Sabbath rest. Do no work on that particular day. When we get to heaven, do you think you're going to have to do work collecting food? You're not. And you won't even have to eat, but there will be food there, and you can eat, and you will never starve, and you will never die. And that's the beauty of it. God is going to provide everything, and that's the lesson that God in the Old Testament through Moses was trying to educate the people on, that God will provide for you everything 
every day, moment by moment. You don't need to save up. You don't need to worry about what you're going to have for tomorrow. This is the instruction he gave to his disciples. Go out and take nothing with you. And you go two by two. And when you enter a city, if it receives you and the house receives you, the people of the house, let your blessing and your peace rest upon it. And if not, shake the dust off your feet and leave the city. And you were to go with nothing. And so if the Lord calls you to go somewhere, you go. Abraham was told, just go. He didn't even know where he was supposed to go. He was just told, go. And don't worry, everything else will be provided for you. You may have doubts during your journey with Christ, but he provides everything. And he does so richly. He doesn't skimp on his blessings. Now, in Egypt, where they had come from, there were no days off. And manna sustained them throughout the day and it was said in scripture in deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 4 the whole time they were out there no foot swelling took place and their garments didn't wear out and that was a reference to starvation that their feet would swell when they were malnourished and they didn't have any of that they were completely supplied through what god gave them in the manna now with this sabbath the sabbath is saturday for us It is not Sunday. So why do Christians worship on Sunday and not Saturday? Well, it comes through the traditions that have been in the Christian church. What day did Jesus rise from the dead? No, not crucified. When did he rise from the dead? It was the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week? And it's not Monday. It's Sunday. And so when Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, we know that the redemption process was complete. He had rose. He had his transformed body. It was all good. Also, on the six days, you're supposed to work. On the seventh day, you're supposed to rest, right? That is the first day of the week for us. This, this idea that the first day we are supposed to give to God, you're supposed to give him your first fruits. Also, the seventh day celebrates the creation, the finished creation. All of these things apply. And Paul said on the first day of the week, take up an offering for the people in Jerusalem. And so the churches in the area of Greece and Ephesus and all of those churches, Paul said, take up an offering on the first day. And it is assumed that's when they got together. If you go to Israel today, their Saturday is the Sabbath. Everything shuts down over there. And Sunday, it's just like our Monday. You wake up on Sunday, you think you're going to go to church, and it's just business as usual. And so that is how it transformed into Sunday for us uh, in the scriptures but there are sects of christians that decide no it's sabbath it the sabbath is saturday that is today you're supposed to worship and they are brethren they are believers in christ but they believe and there's a particular uh, denomination that does that it's the seventh day adventist they also believe that uh, it's more holy to be a vegan like daniel uh, Daniel only ate vegetables. And if, you know, if somebody wants to eat vegetables, have at it. Buy a ton of kale, put it in with your carrots and a little bit of apple and make a smoothie or whatever you do. God bless you in that. And I hope you meet your 
uh, ration every single day of those vegetables. As for me and my house, we will eat steak, you know, and chicken and hamburgers and, you know, whatever. I'll even have ostrich jerky and whatever else I can get my hands on that is meat and that is consumable, I will eat it if it is set before me. And there are people... Uh, this was talked about in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. They were concerned about food, what you eat, and what you drink, and any festivals or celebrations or a new moon or a Sabbath, because Israel went by the moons and celebrations that went through there. And also the harsh treatment of the body. They think that doing those things makes you more spiritual. And on the contrary, the more freedom you have under restraint means you are more spiritual than the person that puts up hedges. And they try to declare, it's God's will that you don't drink soda. It's bad. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have freedom to drink soda. But there are people who want to control your food intake, your exercise regimen. They will do it in the schools for the kids. They want to tell you how fast and how far to drive. And eventually they're going to control that too. You won't be able to drive where you want because your car is going to be self-driving. Not only is there things like this in the church, but there are things like that in society. It's all about control. And we think it's more noble or more spiritual to have all these controls. And it's not. Not everybody has the freedom to do everything. There's Christians that think that they can dance at a wedding and other Christians that will stand up and say, sacrilege, thou shalt not dance before the Lord. And it's like, well, David danced before the Lord, but Michael, his wife didn't, and her name was Michael, she didn't like it. She thought it was terrible and he was making a fool of himself. And that's the day he said, I'll no longer see you anymore. He was just done with her. And so there is this idea of freedom, but it's freedom under restraint. It's freedom under control. And then there is this idea of controlling everything. And because God decided he was going to make the people his own, he had to put a lot of restraints to show them who he was, to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. That's why they had the Ten Commandments, and that's why they had the ceremonial law, all the sacrifices, and everything that was associated with that. Verse 27, here they're still not listening. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Now, usually you come to an agreement and two people can walk together. But in the midst of that agreement, if somebody breaks it continually, don't you get a little frustrated? I mean, if somebody does something that causes you to be concerned and you're just going, what? What is going on with that? The Lord just said, just follow these simple rules. Pick it up six days. Don't pick it up the seventh day. It'll turn into maggots and everything else if you do. He goes, how long do I have? How many times do I have to tell you? Over and over and over. And the people were just not getting it. It's like, what's wrong with their head? You know, they keep on banging their head against, God does, bangs his head against the wall like, why can't you guys just, this is simple stuff. It's easy. God's, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what is God, God requiring here? He's requiring trust. He's saying, will you just trust me? And the people wouldn't. 
they would be in their tents. They'd get up on the Sabbath and say, you know, I'm going to get some more. I don't believe that there's, this is going to last for two days. I'm going to get up and go get some. And so they go, I'm not trusting what Moses said. I'm not trusting what God said. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to believe in spite of what everybody else says. And, of course, they fell into disobedience because of that. And, by the way, this was their problem through their entire sojourn, the 40 years. They just refused to trust God. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't submit to him. No matter how much God showed himself faithful, they refused to put their full trust in him. That's why they didn't enter the promised land. He goes on in verse 29, Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the six days he gives you bread. For two days everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah, or about two quarts. So what the Lord did here, the tabernacle is not yet constructed. They had this place called uh, in front of the testimony that they had this testimony to God, but it was not the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was being fashioned, they had to make the Ark of the Covenant. And when they had the Ark of the Covenant, which held the two tablets that Moses got on, that were restored to him on Mount Sinai, and they put those Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. And it wasn't very big. It was about this long. It was about as wide as this lectern right here. And it was about that high and they had gold um, stakes or staves that would go through it through the rings and there were two angels on top and so they had the ten commandments in there they also had a jar this jar that was put before the testimony it is inside the ark of the covenant now one other thing is in there do we know what that is Aaron's staff why is Aaron's staff in there because it budded it was just a stick, right? And God gave him a sign, and this thing budded. It produced flowers, and it had been dead for years. I have an old hiking stick at home, and it's made of a pine tree, the top of a pine tree. And if that thing started sprouting, I would say, something's up. I, I better pay attention to what's going on. And so that's what's in the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what? One day, people are going to know what the manna was. Now, why is that? Because the temple is going to be rebuilt. Anybody who's anybody, according to the rabbis in Israel, know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, did, they, did you go to the Temple Institute when you were there? And they showed you the video of that? Did you see the rabbi who was just kind of leaning, saying, anybody who's anybody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is? Something like that. Yeah, and he had this black hat on, and you know, this black robe. So they know where it is. And inside of that, 
Is the Ten Commandments that Moses had? Is the Aaron's rod that budded? And is the jar of manna? It is there, and one day it's going to come out. What do you think the Jews are going to do when that thing is revealed? They are going to go nuts, just nuts. They're going to say, it's all true. And the atheists are going to say, no, it's not. They made it. They were hiding it is what they're... No, God said it's going to come forth. And when that happens, there's going to be rejoicing in Israel. We won't be here to see it. And you go, what? We're going to be raptured at that time. When that Now, it could come out ahead of time. It could be revealed ahead of time. And the Antichrist makes a covenant according to Daniel, and they get to rebuild their temple. And an impetus for that would be the Ark of the Covenant being brought out. So are we going to see it? Well, I think the chance is between zero and one that we'll see it. But chances are we won't because this will be taking place during the tribulation period. And so this is to be a reminder, this jar of manna, of God's faithfulness and what he has done. Now with that, we are supposed to have reminders as well. Uh, reminders are good. I know some guys and some gals who go out and they get a tattoo. And it may say something like Isaiah, a scripture in Isaiah. Uh, it may say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It, it may say lots of different things and they remind themselves of who the Lord is. Now in the Old Testament, if you did that, it's a big no-no. And the New Testament, it's a big no. No, I'm kidding. It doesn't matter in the New Testament. If you want to have a tattoo, it, that's not one of the things we're supposed to argue about. You know, if you want one, that's up to you. It's your body, uh, especially if you think it glorifies the Lord. If Now, don't anybody run out and get a tattoo today because Pastor Bill said it was okay. You know, if you keep that between you and the Lord. But we're supposed to have reminders. Now, what kind of reminders do you think they should be? Like, for instance, do you have a cross in your house? You see this reminder right here? There's a cross right here. You see the reminder of the Holy Spirit up on the wall? Now, we don't have a lot of symbols around here. It's not that we don't like the symbols. We just don't have a lot of symbols. But like in your Bible... Do you write in your Bible? Do you write in the margins of your Bible? Do you make notes in there so that when you go back, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. We got that in the message or I got that in Bible study. In your Bibles, if you have your Bible, if you look in the front and in the back, there sh if it's a good Bible, you should have several blank pages. You know what that's for? It's for you to be writing and making notes. In the front of my Bible, I have deity scriptures. I have a few other things uh, that are in there, but things to remind me. So when I open it up, you're supposed to write things down. You know, when you look at the God's word and you say, okay, I'm going to make a reference. I'm going to make a star and make my own chain reference or something like that. We're to have those reminders, just like the Israelites had their reminders. Now going on, we are into Exodus chapter 17, but God continued to provide the manna for those 40 years, and even though they were grumblers and complainers, God continued to give his grace. And that's a testimony to God. How long would you put up for somebody who is obstinate and stiff-necked for 40 years? Would you put up with them for five minutes? <laughs> Work in a complaint department. It's just horrible what some people do on that. And so God, in spite of the stiff-necked people and their obstinance, he goes, I'm still going to bless them. I'm still going to provide for them. And God does that with the rain falling. He causes the rain fall to, uh, on both the righteous 
and the unrighteous. He blesses both the unbelievers and the believers. That's because it's in keeping with his character. God is a God who is merciful. In chapter 17, verse 1, it reads, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? How many times in the last few chapters have you seen this grumbling going on? It is constant. It is not letting up whatsoever. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children, make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So Moses is going, Lord, give me some relief here, would you? Help a guy out. Help the boy. And so the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? There, there is so much here. Now, for those of you, and I'm sure not many of you may know this, what kept Moses from entering the promised land? No, I'll go on you next. Keith, you have an answer? Okay, what did I just read? You know, I should probably read it again. Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand a staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders. And he called the place Massa. And Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Did Moses strike the rock? Did Moses not get into the promised land because he struck the rock? The second time. Okay, that's it. You guys need to keep this in mind. Now, first of all, where are they? Did you find that in Scripture? I read it at the top. Top of the chapter. What does it say in your scripture? Desert of sin. They were in the desert of sin. Ever feel like you're in the desert of sin? They were in the desert of sin. But in Numbers chapter 20. Now you can turn there if you want to. This is the second time. And it can be confusing to some. And some people will come up and they'll say, You know, didn't Moses not enter the promised land because he struck the rock? And here your scripture says that he struck the rock. So how is it that he got into the promised land? Your Bible is obviously off, right? In Numbers chapter 20, it says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin. So there's the desert of Sin, and there's the desert of Zin. Now, do you think those are the same word? 
Now, some people say, wow, it's got to be the same word. They just wrote it different. One is the desert of sin, and the other is the desert of zin. But not only that, in verse 13, it says, These were the water of Mirabah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. Okay, the waters of Mirabah, we just read about it in Exodus. Now we're over in Numbers, and you read about the waters of Mirabah, and we read that Moses, when you go through the rest of this text, he was told only to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock. Now some people say, well, see, they're the same story. No, they're not. It's like Sandy just said, they're two different stories. The first time, Moses was supposed to go and strike the rock. Now, if you're into metaphors, what's the rock? It's Jesus Christ. And he was struck, metaphorically speaking. He was placed on the cross, and that was it. So he struck the rock. The second time, the rock provides water. If it's Christ, does he have to be crucified again? Ruins the whole type. Moses was disobedient. God was setting up some symbolism here, and Moses blew it. He, I'll give you some timing on this. This is the first month in the 40 years of the wilderness. At the year 40, this is the first month. So for 40 years, these people have been complaining. They should have said, we've been here before. It's the rock. Moses is standing in front of the rock. Water's going to come out of the rock. Hey, what's going on here? Weren't we complaining or our ancestors complaining? Because everybody had died by this time. God was showing them that he was still faithful. And they were still complaining. It was still an issue. It had never left them. Now, why is that? Because they're sinners. We do the same thing. You know, Moses was humble and he was a faithful servant of God. And at times, he would blow it. Just like at this time, he struck the rock. And because he struck the rock, God disciplined him for it. It wasn't that he was still not his anointed. He was. But God said, you know, that's it. You're completely done. And with that, this idea of striking the rock, the Israelites got water to keep themselves alive physically. And the second example, the rock was supposed to represent the living water, which is Jesus Christ who keeps us or gives us life spiritually. In John chapter 14, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a to him or in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is the Samaritan woman at the well. She says, give me this water to drink. She knew that if she drank it, drank it she would be alive physically and she wouldn't have to have any more water what a great thing this pursuit of staying alive we want to stay alive do you know how big the push is to make us eternal in this life i started looking it up i had about 10 articles i'm going to give you a couple of them of people trying to make sure we don't die physically. Los Angeles, May 1st, 2016. Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, search for the breakthrough in anti-aging therapy, therapies in NatJo Science Series, which starts tonight. That's going to be on tonight. Here's another one. Key to eternal life? Question mark. Someone already born will live to 1,000. And immortality is possible. The paragraph under that. A doctor who has dedicated his work to the quest for eternal life insists the record for the oldest living person will soon fall and someone 
already alive will keep going until they make a thousand. That was Sunday, May 1st, 2016. The next one, The Scientific Quest to Cure Aging by Ashley Welsh, CBS News, January 27th, 2016. The Daily Beast, year in review. The year we decided to live forever. And those were only, what, four or five articles. There were dozens of articles. You know who is investing big in this technology? Mark Zuckerberg, the man who is probably the richest, I, I guess um, Bezos is probably up there too. They want to live forever. And he has sunk millions into this technology. And they think they're at a breakthrough. Do you think God will allow that to happen? When was the last time he stopped people from living forever? The Garden of Eden. And so how close do you think we are? Do you think the Lord will let them get the technology and come back after they implement it? Or do you think he will stop it before they ever get it? I, my belief is they'll stop it before he ever gets it. And so then you ask yourself the question, so how close is it? I think it's really close. Now, how close is that? I don't know. It's relative. Am I really close to somebody else is really close? Maybe a long time. But you can tell it's just all lining up. The Amalekites, after this verse 8, came and attacked the Israelites. And Rephidim, Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. You know what? I'm going to have to end there because we do have communion that we need to pass out this morning. But so far, <coughs> what we have learned from this text and it it's a repeating theme and by the way i'm just taking the text and giving you the text because god wants you to know what's in the text if you were reading this by yourself you would be going through several chapters of complaining and arguing and being against the leadership and not trusting in god and what we're supposed to take away is we are supposed to just be quiet and trust God when we don't see his hand working. He knows what's going on. He took care of the entire Israelite population. No one fell that wasn't supposed to fall. And he brought them to a point where they could enter the promised land. And he did that with stuff falling from the sky. If God wants you to succeed, he can bring you manna wherever he can cause you to be alive without even having food or water. He can do all these things. And so the onus on us is to recognize, again, don't complain. Be tight with the Lord. Trust him. Don't test the Lord in what he is doing or not doing. Just be faithful to do what he has called you to do. And if you do, you will receive blessing. Now what we're going to do at this point is something that God has also commanded that we take communion, we receive communion. And so if the worship team would come on up, we're going to have the guys come up and they're going to take this communion and pass it out to you. And please hold on to it uh, until you can receive it together.